0: everybody i'm michael davis welcome to bone to pick and we are extremely fortunate to have uh, one of my favorite musicians uh, in the world of all time the great tim hagans as our guest and our featured artist for the month of december uh, tim is for my money one of the most inventive creative and dynamic trumpet soloists of his generation uh, he has received worldwide popular and critical acclaim he is a three-time Grammy nominee uh, as a composer and as a solo artist. He has released over a dozen CDs as a leader and co-leader. He has toured and recorded with the likes of Dexter Gordon, Thad Jones, Ernie Wilkins, Joe Lovano, Maria Schneider, The Yellow Jackets, Kenny Drew, Steps Ahead, and in a, a very long and prolific relationship with the great Bob Belden. Uh, he was a member of the Stan Kenton Orchestra for three years. Uh, For 15 years, he was the artistic director and composer-in-residence of the Norrbotten Big Band in Sweden. Uh, He has received numerous awards and commissions, including an honorary doctorate from the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, He's recently just come back from Hamburg, where he's working with the NDR radio band. Uh, He has done extensive work with the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensemble, uh, both as a composer and a performer. And um, on a personal note, uh, I've known Tim for many, many years, have been a fan since the first four bars I heard him play uh, 20 years ago, and I'm very fortunate that he was willing to uh, play an incredible solo on my uh, Brass Nation CD, and I also uh, am honored to to publish a book that he was a co-author on called Maximum Mastery, incredible etudes that he wrote. So uh, it's always a treat to uh, get to spend some time with this gentleman musically and personally, and Tim, I just want to thank you for... Making the trip all the way up to New City oh, today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, and uh, your words give me goosebumps and <laughs> and, and, and smiles. Well, so they're it's, uh, it's, if uh, anything, they're understated. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's,
0: it's great, it's, great to uh, to spend some time with you. Today. Well, thank
1: you, and likewise, I've been a, a fan of yours for for many years, and and uh, am honored to be a part of Brass Nation uh, and the uh, the Etude book that that we did. Uh, Oh, mastery. Thank you, thank you Tim. It means always a pleasure to be in your presence.
0: Oh, that's you. you're very <laughs> kind. Well, well, without further ado, let's, let's start kind of at the beginning. I know you grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and maybe talk about your upbringing and what kind of made you get into music back then.
1: Well, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, the series is called Bone to Pick. And uh, my mother used to, uh, that was one of the things my mother used to say when she wanted to argue with somebody, <laughs> is I, I have a bone to pick with you. Right. So. <laughs> but uh, she wasn't referring to the trombone, of course. Right, but, right. Seldom anyway, do they refer to the trombone. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> we used to carve the turkey, and there would be the wishbone. that. Right. Know, you'd, right have good luck for the rest of the year if you got the large part but uh, anyway so i like the title of this series you know cool (laughs) but uh you know i grew up in dayton ohio i was born in 1954 and uh, i don't uh, necessarily come from a musical family my parents didn't play anything but uh, there was always a lot of music being played on the stereo system of of all kinds classical music and you know easy listening and uh, jazz records of that my You know, my parents loved Dave Brubeck Mm. records, and uh, Ellington, and Ella Fitzgerald, and, you know. uh, Not so much Miles Davis and Coltrane, and those things, that kind of came later. I think I introduced my parents to those things. But, Mm. you know, when they were dating in the 50s, they they went to a lot of jazz concerts because they both loved that music in Cincinnati and Dayton. And uh, later when I played with Stan Kenton, they were thrilled because they had dating in the early 50s, they had gone to see uh, Stan Kenton. Sure, you know. Stan, so. My mother sure, even sure. worked at a music store, uh, a record store, as a teenager in Dayton in, Dayton in the, uh, the mid-40s, and remember Stan coming in for autograph signing, that, that kind oh, of oh, thing. Cool. So, That's great. so uh, they were very supportive of me wanting to be a musician and uh, you know, private lessons playing in the school bands. You know, It was, uh, it was very supportive.
0: Oh, you know. very cool. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Stan Kenton, and I think it's it's one of the coolest things, because you don't hear Stan's name mentioned quite as much as some of the other big band leaders these days, but he was such a prominent force in the whole big band uh, scene, you know, and you say in the 50s, but all the way through the 60s and 70s, but right, and right. you spent three years with him to tell us about uh, your memories <laughs> of, the, of that time and what, what that was like for you.
1: Well, I remember... Uh... You know, I can answer the question as well as some things about Dayton. Uh, You know, Ohio is a very populated state, and so the big bands at that time, they were all traveling, and uh, because of uh, the the population in Ohio and also the many universities, and there were still supper clubs, those bands, Stan, Buddy Rich, Maynard, uh, uh, Woody Herman, Count Basie, Ellington, uh, even Don Ellis did a few Mm. tours and came to Ohio, I mean, I heard all of these bands, at least one of these bands, once a month during my high school years, late 60s, early 70s. And uh, so, it, you know, I, I had a sound picture of what this, this was, this animal, the big band, and how it could sound <laughs> because my parents took me to all these concerts. And there was also a jazz club in Dayton uh, called Jilly's and a form of it is still there. The guy that started it uh, in the late 60s, Jerry Gelati, is still there and has a club called Jilly's in Dayton, although mm-hmm. now it's a larger venue and has all sorts of different kinds of music. But back then it was a little shotgun room on the, on the edge of town, and every band would play six nights in a matinee on Sunday. Cannibal Adderley, Freddie Hubbard, uh, Chuck Mangione, one of my early heroes, uh, Milt Jackson, I mean, every, uh, you know, Pharaoh Sanders I heard there, Ahmad Jamal, every week in this little hometown there was a band that played six nights of the, you know, these incredible historic musicians. So growing up in Dayton, I, I heard a lot of music and, uh, and it gave me a picture of what things sound like live, which I think is a problem today for a lot of younger musicians uh, is they don't have the opportunity even in larger cities, to hear like a professional big band and mm-hmm. that power and sound, and, and even the subtleties, the softness, the, how the, the instruments blend, uh, you know, they're playing in, in their own bands in school, but it's very hard to get the picture of what it should sound like if you're not listening constantly to these live, live orchestras, and I was very fortunate at that time, in that city, there was a lot of music coming through, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, I heard all of the big bands, but I remember hearing Stan Kenton as the one that I identified with most. Five trumpet players, you know, and a lot of drums. There was a mm-hmm. Latin percussionist, Ramon Lopez, who was with the band sure. for many years. Uh, five trombones, uh, you know, three tenor trombones and two bass trombones. One of the guys played tuba. Two baritone saxes. I mean, it was, it was a massive sound, and it had all of the extremes, extreme... Uh, uh, pianissimo's to like uh, triple forte it was just an incredible spectrum that uh, in many ways that that band uh, uh, you know pervaded so I, I like uh, was fascinated by those extremes mm-hmm. and uh, I went to Bowling Green State University for two years and was going to transfer to uh, the Berklee College of Music because I was really getting into improvisation and at that time 72, 73. There was really no jazz uh, studies program at Bowling Green,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, but in between those two years, I went to a, a summer Kenton clinic and got to know the trumpet players. And uh, I didn't really express an interest in joining the band because I didn't think I was ready or that they would even consider me. And uh, a year later, right after my second year of college, I, I got a, a call from one of the trumpet players who was also from Dayton, asking me if I wanted to come out. At sub for two weeks Mm. and I said "Ah, I wish I could but I'm I'm contracted to play the Miss Ohio pageant in the pit (laughs) band (laughs) and you know I was brought up that you you don't tell lies and you 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 know you you're true to your word and I had promised this contractor in Cleveland that I would I would be there Uh And I remember hanging up the phone, and my parents said, well, who was that? And I told them that the Stan Kenton Orchestra had just called, and I had to say no, because I'm playing the Miss Ohio pageant. (laughs) They couldn't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) They said, are you kidding? So so I called the contractor in Cleveland, told him what had happened. He said, are you kidding? (laughs) I I can find another (laughs) drummer player. So I had to track down where the band was, and uh, they were a little reluctant at the office in Los Angeles to give me the, the hotel where the band was staying, but I, they could hear the panic in my voice, you know, uh, a career about to begin. And, and uh, so anyway, I talked to John Harner, my friend who was on the band from Dayton, and told him that I could get out of the Miss Ohio patch. He says, Oh, it's no problem, I took care of it already. The guy that's going on vacation is gonna go a week later. So I ended up doing the Miss Ohio pageant through a Saturday night, sleeping in a tent in a campground with some friends of mine, also in the pit band, because it didn't pay that much, and, you know, camping was an option at that point in my life. <laughs> and then the next night in Zanesville, Ohio, I started playing with the Stan Kenton Orchestra, and uh, it was Sunday night at a roller rink. It was a dance gig, so that was my introduction to the but, uh, and then one thing led to another, and the, the guy that went on vacation decided to stay there, so they offered me the job, and that was how I, you know, funny story about how I.
0: That is awesome. You know, yes.
1: I, could, I was there for Miss Ohio and also Stan <laughs> you Kent. Know. That but, is great. um So it was almost three years that I was played on the band. It was a great experience. You know, I was 19 when I joined, and uh, uh, the bus was like a rolling listening lab Mm -hmm. because everybody had cassettes of their LPs and uh, we just exchanged tapes and and talked about music. It was an incredible experience during the day on the bus. And then then we were playing every night. We had two weeks off a year, so we played every night except for two weeks uh, around Christmas. And uh, and I was, not at the beginning, but I kind of worked my way into one of the solo chairs. So I was playing two or three long solos on modal tunes in odd time signatures uh for you know for all all those all those gigs every night and uh really had a chance to experiment and, and
0: you know it was that was great and you shared before the interview you were talking about how that kind of shaped and we'll talk more about your approach to sure to harmony and chromaticism as we go along but you know you're 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 legendary for that and then you're True virtuoso at that, and, and it's interesting that you shared that that time with Stan was kind of the beginning of your right. th- thinking in those in, in in those kind of ways. So exactly. I, I found that to be really very cool and very interesting. That it stemmed from right. you know something that's more structured, like Stan's band was clearly more you know traditional in a, sen- a certain kind of sense. You right, know? right. But but, yeah. uh, but interesting. What you know, I one of the things I, I uh, went to uh, Stan Kenton. Big Bang Camp in California growing up. For, okay. and, and Which, loved which, it, which year? It, it, this was in 78, I guess. Okay, yeah. Like and uh, yeah. it was great. And I remember talking to various people. And this was, you know, towards the end of Stan's life. But, right. you know, Stan certainly was kind of, he was a pioneer and ahead of his time in a way in terms of starting Creative World and the Big Bang Camps and all the work that he was doing. Right. I mean, he really was a big jazz education guy. And, I right. mean, that must have been cool for you to, to you know, be alongside that at such a young age.
1: Yeah, it was uh, incredible. Uh, when I went to that Stan Kenton Clinic, it was in Springfield, Missouri at Drury College, and I had seen the band you know at, at concerts and at nightclubs and had you know, talked to a few people, and it was always incredibly exciting, but to, to be in that environment for a week with those guys Uh, wearing t-shirts and shorts and sandals and sitting (laughs) on the lawn having trumpet clinics and talking about life on the road and it it kind of uh, really gave a a human aspect to this this uh, this whole endeavor and because I saw those bands so many times and and noticed that every time there was at least one or two different trumpet players Mm -hmm. from the band that was six months before uh, I kind of realized that there was perhaps a job opportunity somewhere in this big band world if i you know practiced and 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 expressed an interest and mm-hmm. got up to that to that level and i think also you know talking about things that are different nowadays for younger musicians i think that's also a problem is uh, you know there were maybe 10 touring big bands with the, the dorsey bands and the Glenn miller and there were opportunities people thinking that at that time you know i could uh, go on the road with one of these bands for a year or two and get experience that way make some money play music it was like something that was was viable to to think about and uh, all of the band leaders were hiring young guys out of college and and uh, some veteran guys I when I played with Woody Herman there were several guys that were already living in New York that were a little older and were you know Mm -hmm. had a New York career going and uh, but we're out with Woody for a little while so it just seemed like uh, this could be possible Mm -hmm. you know to uh, to play in one of these bands and now the bands really don't exist and uh, you know it's I talk to young people when I'm doing clinics and residencies at different universities and this is one of their concerns is the, the job opportunities after they after they sure. leave you know
0: I know having been fortunate to spend a couple of years on Buddy Rich's band I mean I learned and I'm sure you would echo this I learned Probably more on Buddy Rich's band than I did getting a degree at Eastman School of Music, you know, just <laughs> right. because you're applying it in such an intense, right, serious atmosphere, right, every day for right. you know, like you said, um, you know, 50 weeks a year. So it's right. it's an incredible thing. Yeah, um, you mentioned Woody Herman, right, and you, and you have an interesting <laughs> story with that. So you were kind <clears throat> enough to share it earlier and uh, uh, tell us about that experience. Which
1: well, I I played with Stan for almost three years, and uh, during that time, uh, the uh, you know, I was the fifth trumpet player, but I played, as I mentioned, uh, a couple of solos every night. And most of them were over modal uh, vamps, you know, G minor and 5-4 for, for two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. Stan really did not comp that much. He was not a bebop piano player. You know, I always think that he's kind of like the jazz rock Rachmaninoff. He, <laughs> he would play the most incredible rubato solo piano introduction to a ballad. Body and Soul, or Here's That Rainy Day. I mean, it would just be, you know, tears and goosebumps. Mm-hmm. And then he would cue the band in. And, you know, when he was playing on the swing tunes with changes, he, you know, he played, of course, he was a jazz pianist, but um, a lot of times he didn't comp. He liked the spatial aspect of just drums and bass, and, and uh, perhaps he didn't feel as comfortable as, as somebody, you know, like you know, like Bud Powell would would Mm -hmm. feel in Mm -hmm. that in that situation, more of a bebop situation. So a lot of my soloing was drums and bass and Latin percussion on one chord. And Stan demanded that you play different things every night. In fact, it like a like a manager on a on a baseball team, if somebody was was playing the same ideas over and over, he would just pass the solo to somebody else for a couple of weeks and say, Oh wow, interesting. You know, you're stale and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, here, or play on this instead, uh-huh. you know, that kind of thing, just because he wanted people to play differently. So I took that as a mandate to go out and, and experiment every night. And, you know, if you're on uh, G minor for two or three minutes, the Dorian scale is only going to go so far <laughs> if you're going to try to play something different every night. Right. So I started realizing that, you know, if you play a G on a G minor chord, that has a certain, very individual sound. That's what that note sounds like on that chord. You know, in that register, if you play G an octave up, uh, it's still the root of the chord. It has that quality, but it's an octave higher on your horn, so that has a different emotional context and so on. The B flat sounds different than the G. Well, what happens if you play a B natural, you know? Uh, that sounds very interesting. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> instead of thinking about everything as in terms of notes in the chord scale and notes outside, I just started looking at individual notes and their quality, and thinking about well, where would I want to use them, and how do they work melodically, you know, horizontally as well as just how do they sound vertically against the chord. So, um, and that was a great workshop for that concept because Stan, you know, I had to walk around Stan to get to the microphone in front and then back around him to get mm-hmm. back to my place in the trumpet section. And uh, he was always smiling, you know? So <laughs> I, knew it was, I knew it was cool, you know? And uh, at that time also I was listening a lot to, uh, you know, one of the, the Rolling Listening Lab uh, concepts. I would listen to the same trumpet player for a month without listening to anybody else, mm. you know? So I was listening a lot to Freddie Hubbard, everything that he had recorded up to that point, and also Woody Shaw. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, you know, the the differences between the two. Uh, you know, Woody—they're both coming out of a modern saxophonistic kind of way of playing, but um, you know, Woody was playing a lot of intervals, and I loved intervals. Going mm-hmm. back to the my parents' record collection of Bartok's uh, Concerto for Orchestra, with the intervals in the brass, mm-hmm. and Copland's Third Symphony, and. Mm-hmm to me, probably even before I started playing the trumpet or had an interest in playing the trumpet, I loved the way those brass intervals sounded. Then when I heard Woody Shaw, I thought, wow, this is, you know, this, this cat is playing them in an improvised swing and hip harmonically, hip harmonic way, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was also working on those things every night with Stan Kent and was using these notes, all the notes in the chromatic scale, uh, you know, uh, in an intervallic way. To try to stretch the register and and uh, you know uh, see what I could do in the improvised moment. I've I've never transcribed anything. Uh, I've never really checked out what other people are doing in a theoretical way. Mm. So uh, it was just listening over and over to the same records and getting that feel that emotion of feel emotional feel of what these guys were doing, and then trying to incorporate it every night into. Uh, into the you know the live experience that I had, knowing that Stan would approve even of failures and uh, you know uh, you know lines that perhaps didn't work and mm-hmm. he liked the experiment going on. So yeah, it was cool. a great it was a great experience. The one thing that I was not taking care of, uh, getting back to your question that you asked about fifteen minutes <laughs> ago, <laughs> uh, the the other thing was that there was not a whole lot of uh, playing over changes. You know, okay. when we did dance gigs, there was a great dance book, Lenny Niehaus, uh, right. Pete Rugelow, uh, Stan's early arrangements uh, based on standard tunes. And he had quite a few records in the 50s, you know, Adventures in Standards, uh, those types of records mm-hmm. that, that had, like, the Great American Songbook and just really fantastic arrangements. A lot of times there was eight bars or 16 bars of a, a trumpet solo in there. And... Uh, you know, I wasn't the, the greatest uh, kind of bebop player coming out of that language. And again, I wasn't transcribing, so I was just kind of groping, trying to figure out the important notes. Uh, uh, and was a little clumsy doing it, but uh, that was what I really uh, had. If there was any weakness in my playing at that point, it was kind of making the changes over, over standard material. But that's what I was working on. I had Abersold play-alongs on cassettes in my hotel room, and every night I would, knew I, would, I was going to play the bridge on A-Train or Satin Doll and, uh, you know, would concentrate on trying to work in those notes, as well as the intervals and, uh, um, you know, just experimenting with other notes. So, you know, this brings us to Woody Herman, and uh, uh, I had heard Woody's band several times. In fact, we had done double concerts with, with Woody, and... You know, I felt for me after almost three years it was time for a change, and and, uh, uh, I wasn't bored with the music, but I felt like I was, I had to, it was time to do something else, Mm -hmm. you know, as as great as the band was. And I loved everybody on the band at that time. We had a, it was really a a band full of uh, people who respected each other and supported everybody. It was like a family, you know, Mm -hmm. and Stan was great too. But uh, So there was the opportunity to, uh, to go with Woody Herman, and, uh, and I took it. And um, Woody really wasn't uh, in charge of, uh, if I understand the story correctly, in charge of hiring the musicians. It was the guys in each section.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I knew uh, one of the guys, Dennis Dotson from Houston, who was leaving the band, and Woody loved his playing. He was, you know, I love his playing. He's, and even now when I hear him, it's just uh, amazing, melodic. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, beautiful player. All the things that I can't play, I don't hear those <laughs> things. I don't try to play them necessarily, but I have the big respect for you know people like Dennis, uh, Tom Harrell, John Swana. Right, I mean, right. these cats. Uh, I listen to their records. And I think, wow, man, I wish I could play like that. You know. <laughs> I'm stuck playing like me. Well, I'm sure they listen <laughs> to you, I think the exact same thing. I'm well, quite confident. <laughs> well, Woody, Woody loved Dennis' playing, and I replaced Dennis, so that was the first strike. And I think uh, also Woody found out later that I'd played with Stan Kent, and he didn't appreciate that. And also he just didn't like the way I played. Because you know, Woody's material was all uh, you know, standard harmony, functional harmony, two-five-ones, rhythm changes, the blues, standard tunes, you know, things like that. And, uh, and I was, at that point, I was making the changes. I actually have a couple of cassettes from my last night that somebody recorded, and, and I am making the changes, but Woody didn't like, the, didn't like many things about me. And, right? <laughs> I understand that. It's okay. You know? So I lasted a month. You know, we had a bunch of important gigs. We did, I started in Chicago, and we played all the big cities and had you know, all these important gigs, and I think Woody didn't want a string of trumpet players coming in you know, um, so uh, we got to, you know, we got to Minot, <laughs> and uh, see you later, you know. <laughs> and, what a but beautiful like, place to exit, yeah, right, right. No, but, but I, I mean, I understand, I understood that it was, it was totally cool. I, of course, I was upset, but, but, yeah. uh, but, you know, it just, that's, that's what happens, but you know, um, it was the first time I worked with somebody who really did not like my playing. Mm. That was a, a new, at that point, cause Stan had been so supportive, yeah. it, was a new, it was a new thing. And it was funny, because flying out of that airport, I guess we were in Bismarck on my last night, and uh, and I was on the same plane flying back to Dayton, and, and there was only one plane a day or something, and so Woody was on the same plane. The travel <laughs> agent put us right next to each other. Oh, so, no. so we had a nice conversation <laughs> nice about <laughs> What I would have to do to get back in the band, and you know, like how sorry he was, it didn't work out. Okay, well, it was was cool. I thought you you were going to say it was a very quiet flight, (laughs) but (laughs) that's good. No, it was it was fine. You know, and I did learn a lot. The rhythmic thing on that band is so much different than Stan's band. Sure. Yeah. I remember the first night on Woody's band, we played the Blue Flame, as the theme song, and then played Four Brothers, and uh, I couldn't play a note you know, those brass hits, I couldn't place them correctly with the rest of the band because Stan's band was so heavy and was uh, swinging in a different way. Right, right. You know. And so everything was very laid back and behind the beat. Even at tempos like that, on Stan's book, there was this pull and tug with the With the with the rhythmic concept and Mm. Woody's band, it was ahead of the beat on the on these things. And it took me a couple of days to really figure out how to mechanically the trumpet, with the the air and the tongue and the even the valves where to where to place those notes. Mm. You know, so there wasn't an echo. but up, but up on these things.
0: (laughs) Well, interesting. I like what you said a few minutes ago about uh, when you're on stands, Ben, how you were exploring the idea of playing a B natural on a G minor chord. And, and I have to say, nobody plays a major third on a minor chord better than you do. It's, <laughs> well, it's, think, it's nice to hear that that was the uh, that was the beginning of that the way of thinking. <laughs> well, I think I
1: hold it out longer than most people. <laughs> to, to me, well, it's not, not just a passing tone. It's actually a, a, it's actually like a dominant note. If you you're on a minor chord, which is tonicized, not a two chord and a two five one, but a minor chord that mm-hmm. you're in the key of that you know G minor. And you play a B natural, it has a dominant effect mm-hmm. of wanting to go somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, now it's much more vertically dissonant than let's say, you know, a third or a, a, a seventh or even a flat nine on a dominant chord that also has that same dominant emotion. But to me it's like a great dominant note. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of people on a G minor chord, they'll play as if they're playing over an altered D seven on the G minor. They'll play an F sharp or an E flat. As part of a line that mm-hmm. leads back to G minor, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, and I do that as well. But to me, there are other dominant uh, options. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's yeah. uh,
0: let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about your time uh, when you moved to Europe. You uh, sure. you uh, I guess that was shortly after you were on Woody's band. You moved to Malmo, Sweden, and uh, right. And I had
1: you... um, I've been on tour in Sweden with Stan Kenton. The year before and met a lot of musicians in copenhagen and uh in southern sweden we played there with stan and so there was an invitation if i ever you know a loose invitation that some some people would help me uh um, you know find some work or Mm -hmm. you know so i just went over and started hanging out on a tourist visa and one thing led to another and i ended up staying five years
0: Mm, nice and i mean I was looking at your bio, and uh, I mean, that you, you developed a pretty close relationship with Thad Jones, and then you worked with Dexter Gordon, so clearly right. a very successful five-year period for your, right. for your career. Right? No,
1: it was great. I uh, I wanted. I always, you know, when I first saw the movie West Side Story, I was probably 10, and I said, I want to move to New York. If they've got that hip music right. playing in the streets, right, and these cats dancing, you know, I want to move to New York, you know. And there's there's one spot still in the in the in, in the uh, the first couple of minutes of West Side Story, uh, Jerome Robbins. I mean, the, the choreography is incredible. Where they're, they're you know between the sharks and the jets, and there's one thing where there's two or three dancers moving slowly down the sidewalk, and one drops back. and right. Every time I watch that, it's like wow. <laughs> Just that two or three seconds of choreography. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and. Uh, so, you know, I had thought about after being fired from Woody's band to move to New York, but um, I was having some chop problems and I, I didn't want to, you know, go, go to New York, still, still kind of working on an embouchure change and uh, these opportunities in Europe. And I thought, wow, this would be, you know, an interesting thing to try and sure. Uh, it's funny that, I mean, I knew Dexter was living over there, but uh, within a couple of months of me moving there, Thad moved there, Ernie Wilkins moved there, there were some of my heroes from listening to Kenny Clark, Francie Ballon records, uh, Sahib Shahab was living mm-hmm. in, in Copenhagen, uh, Kenny Drew was living there, you know, Kenny Drew Sr., Ed Thigpen, Horace Parlin, I played a lot with Horace Parlin, you know, mm. these were like names of, of Of like my heroes listening to all those records and all of a sudden I'm living I was living in Malmo, Sweden which was at that time now there's a bridge connecting the two countries but at that time it was a short um, you know boat ride Mm -hmm. uh, over to Copenhagen and I felt like I'd landed in a little like miniature New York in a way but it was of course very European and that was exciting. I was 23 years old living in a hip place in Europe and you know it was uh, and then there of course there were like all these great Danish and Swedish musicians that I was playing with on on both sides of the of the of the water that separated the two countries and I was because I was living in Sweden I was playing all over Sweden and Stockholm and Gothenburg and got to know a lot of great Swedish musicians some very adventuresome people you know and then uh, and then I was had easy access to Copenhagen so I was playing all over Denmark so it was, uh, it was a it was a great time.
0: Yeah sounds incredibly fruitful and a uh, big fan of Denmark myself and spent some time in Copenhagen and Aarhus it was great people and right. great, like you're saying so many great uh, local musicians what was what was your uh, feelings and memories about Thad and the time you spent with Thad over there? What was that? Anything jump out at it,
1: you? Know? Well, I, I had been around Fad a little bit going to the Vanguard on Monday nights when I was in town with, with Stan, you know, and I remember, uh, you know, sitting in the front row of the Vanguard the last set. And I think there, it's not there anymore, but there was a little radiator by the the column there by the stage on the right side as you're looking at the stage. Sad used to sit on that and mm-hmm. play cornet solos and conduct. And, you know, I remember being close to him just in the, in the audience, but then, uh, I was subbing a lot in the Danish Radio Big Band for a couple of trumpet players. Idris Suleiman uh, was playing in the band at that time, and Alan Bachinski, and they both had other things going on. So quite often, I was playing for one or, or the other of those guys. And uh, the first time I worked with that as a conductor, you know, and uh, so it was a great it was a great experience. At that time, they were pretty much rehearsing and, and recording with the Danish Radio Big Band. Thad's entire uh, you know, canon, everything he's written mm. over the mm. years and some new things as well. So it was great to be in the trumpet section. And, mm. and you know, people ask me, you haven't asked me this yet, but uh, uh, you know, the, my trumpet heroes, and I always mention, of course, Freddie Hubbard, Woody Shaw, and Miles Davis, but Thad is the fourth one. He's, oh, wow. the, he's the, the, the cat that, that uh, perhaps melodically, the way the lines work and flow has influenced me The most. Mm. And also, the percentage of improvisation is incredible with that. And Mm -hmm. during that time, I heard him play so many times, not just in rehearsals and performances with the big band, but just around Copenhagen and in in Aarhus. There was Mm -hmm. a club there where uh, I heard him play many times. Uh, And I was on the edge of my seat. I mean, people, you know, I'm I'm an improvisation freak and fan. (laughs) You know, people. They like to, some people like to drive fast, some people like to you know jump out of airplanes with a parachute. You know. <laughs> uh, people like to watch thrillers. They're on the edge of their seat. Well, right. for me, listening to certain improvisers is like gives me that thrill. Lee Konitz, you know, Thad Jones, uh, Joe Lovano, who I've had the pleasure of working with many times. people sure. that are like not predictable at all. You know, Ravi Coltrane is another one that, that like it seems like they're playing something new 100% of the time and of course that's what i strive to do as well but uh, listening to thad jones during that that time i really realized compared to other players perhaps how much new material i was hearing constantly and it was cracking me up not only that fact but some of the ideas he played were just hilarious and not in the kind of pop goes the weasel <laughs> sense right, that, right. that he played on april in paris but mm-hmm. Just in like on a standard tune, how he boxed himself into a corner and then played out of it mm. into, you know, the next phrase or the next section of the tune was just so incredible wow. that, that I'm like going, what, what happened? What was that? So, you know, <laughs> so you know Thad has always been one of my uh, big trumpet heroes and of, and of course, uh, composition and arranging as well. Sure. You know? Wow. And I I I know a lot of people, they try to imitate Thad, and uh, very few succeed because, and I used to hang out with Thad, and he had a house a little bit outside of Copenhagen, and his writing room was uh, just a a wooden table with score paper, erasers, and pencils. Now, of course, this is way before any kind of notation, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, computer program. The piano was downstairs, and also on the the table was his cornet, and... uh, you know we talked about writing and melody versus harmony and, and everything that he wrote came from, and you can hear this in the lead lines, whether it's the solo, or whether it's the uh, you know the lead trumpet part on a shout chorus, all of those melodies are coming from the way he improvised mm-hmm. you know and uh, and so he was just writing melodies thinking, what would I play if I was going to you know And that's the difference. It's very easy to imitate Thad's voicings. You can look at inside the score, you know, Ray Mm Wright's great book. You can look at Thad's scores. You can, you know, you can see vertically, ah, okay, on a a dominant sus flat nine chord uh, in this situation, Thad used this voicing. Oh, I see what that is. And you can write that in your Mm -hmm. composition Mm -hmm. as well. (laughs) But leading up to it and out of it with you'll never be able to one will never be able to reproduce Thad's melodic concept. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. and that's why it's uh that's why he's so special because it was the combination of this incredible uh understanding of Strayhorn Ellington harmony put on the bassy concept of swing with Thad's incredible melodic, horizontal melodic uh sense. You know, that's why that music just, you know, yeah. so joyous. Yeah.
0: Man, so and, uh, so well said, Tim. I mean, that's yeah. that's exactly like that juxtaposition juxtaposition of those three different elements. You know, right, it's right. incredible. Um, let's talk about you coming back to the U.S. Now, uh, obviously, you had a great time, a great period over in 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 Europe, but uh, then you moved back uh, to your native land, and uh, this time right. down the road <laughs> a little bit in Cincinnati. What was what was it like coming back for well, you to Cincinnati? Well, as I
1: said, I always had like. New York as the goal and uh, several bands that i had been playing with which was the reason I stayed so long, uh, Thad included uh, and a couple of the Swedish bands I was playing with kind of just uh, you know the the opportunities dissipated and those people went in other directions and after five years it just seemed like it was a good time to come back and uh, I uh, went back to Ohio hang out with my parents and uh, I had been home on a, on a trip a, a year earlier just to come back and see everybody for a month and I played at the Blue Wisp in Cincinnati uh, which is a, a jazz club has been various places over the years but um, a great vibe uh, in Cincinnati with this club and uh, the Blue Wisp big band that mm-hmm. plays every Wednesday night they're, they're still playing every Wednesday night after I think it's been 35 years. A great band, uh, John Von Olin is the drummer, uh, Steve Schmidt is the piano player. At that time, when I came back in 81, Lynn Seaton was the bass player. Mm-hmm. And uh, So I sat in with the big band when I was home on the on the, the vacation, and I knew John from uh, this Stan Kenton history. I'd never played with John, but I'd seen him many times with the band. And uh, to play with him and to feel that thing that he's got, which is very special individual the way he the ride cymbal and the just incredible swinging drummer Mm -hmm. you know plus Lynn and Steve Schmidt I said you know I'm gonna come back and play with these cats (laughs) (laughs) so uh that's one of the reasons I came back was to play with them a lot as a trio and then also uh, play with the big band on Wednesdays Mm -hmm. and uh, during that time I ended up teaching a year at the University of Cincinnati in the jazz department and as well as playing with the, the cats there and uh it was a great experience because I, that's where I'm from. I'm a big Cincinnati Reds fan. I'm there you go. politically, morally and socially violently opposed to the designated hitter.
0: Okay, so yeah. I
1: I am a National League thing all the way. Yeah. In fact, I probably know 3 or 4 names of American League players. Just, <laughs> just, I'm sorry. You're just going to draw man. the line in the I sand just right draw there. The line right, yeah. 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 There you yeah. go. I could go on and on about the designated <laughs> hitter. It's just incredible. So, um, (laughs) anyway, so, you know, I love baseball, and I'd go to Reds games and play with these cats, and I was teaching there, and, uh,
0: you know, so it was a great experience, but... uh, Just after the Big Red Machine, right? A few years after that. Right, right. right. I actually was a kid, as
1: a kid at Crosley Field, I saw Pete Rose's work a year in 62, 63, I think, and then... You know, Frank Robinson was my boyhood
0: idol. Vader sure. Benson,
1: those two cats. Frank yeah.
0: Robinson won the Triple Crown on the Reds, didn't he?
1: No, he sure. won He won the Triple Crown uh, uh, with the...
0: Uh, with the Orioles? Oh, I should know. Yeah, with the
1: Orioles. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. American League team. Sorry. Yeah, that's different. right. But,
1: <laughs> but see, but that was before uh, 70. When was the designated? Are you it, sure it he 70.
0: didn't win as a Red?
1: No, I don't, I don't believe so. Okay. But I, it's been a while since I've we'll thought about our, this. We'll have yeah. our uh,
0: staff should look yeah. into that as soon as the interview's
1: is yeah. over. I know he was like the first uh, player manager for the Indians. Or, I don't know. I have to... That's it's, right. It's yeah. been a while since I've, I've thought about Managed Frank. The Giants, I the for say. a little bit. And,
2: yeah, right, right. In fact,
1: I uh, I went to a lot of Giants games during that period in the 80s mm. uh, because the Reds were so terrible you could get really good seats so I'd always get a seat behind the visiting team's dugout Okay. just so I could watch Frank come in and out changing the, <laughs> the pitcher. You know, that's... I was a Frank freak, you know. And of course, being in the National League, you see the, the manager do that a lot more often than you right. do in the, the American League, you know, so.
0: Well, you know, this is probably not a good time to bring this up, but being an Oakland A's fan, you know, we did have the 72 series with you guys. And I know. I'm sorry to say it didn't work out for you. But and
1: know, We did but have the, the 1990 series. <laughs>
0: yes, you that, did. That, yes, you got I, back think there I think there was, a, yeah.
1: there was a broom involved, I think.
0: Yeah, that was uh, an interesting uh, series because we thought <laughs> everybody was thinking the A's were definitely going to win that. Right. And you had Pinello was managing that, right? He was great. Uh, right, right. Yeah, that was quite a, a series for you guys. Yeah. Okay, enough yeah. about okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, following uh, Cincinnati, you moved to, I, I thought sure. you came to New York, but then you w- moved to Boston for right, a couple years? I went of to years? Boston
1: for a couple of years. I taught at Berkeley uh, College of Music and, and again, was, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to... to, to uh, to be a part of a lot of local scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Malmo, uh, Copenhagen, Stockholm, uh, and then Cincinnati, Boston. I met some incredible musicians in Boston Jimmy Mosier, alto saxophonist, sure. yeah. played, played with Buddy in right. the 60s. Uh, George Garzon, Jerry Berganzi, uh, Kenny Servanka, great trumpet player, Greg Hopkins, who I'd seen with Buddy many times. In fact, a lot of my early trumpet heroes. From Buddy's band, Wayne Noss mm-hmm. and uh, 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 George Zantz, right, right, you know, right. and uh, uh, were, you know, um, were Buddy teaching, you know. Buddy, yeah, so I, you yeah. know, it was great. But uh, yeah, in '87, I, I finally moved to New York, and uh, you know, didn't really know a lot of people, but was, people knew me from the different activities I'd been. Been doing for the past uh, 12 or 15 years and uh, uh, most of the people i knew at that point were playing with mel's band at, at monday night so i used mm-hmm. to go down there and hang out and you know one thing led
0: to another mm-hmm. what was uh in your you when i looked at your bio and i knew a lot of it but i didn't know nearly maybe not even half of it it's like the, the width of your work is just phenomenal and the in addition to your solo work but Maybe talk about a few highlights for yourself. I know you have a very strong relationship with Joe Lovano. You've been uh, done some work on Maria Schneider's band. Right, um, right. I, I'm a huge Yellow Jackets fan. I know you played <laughs> on uh, Like a River. Right. And, right. Uh, in fact, I came up on my shuffle the other day at the gym, and uh, your solo was just killer. Oh, it was just thank you. Beautiful. Um, and you also <laughs> really. did. Um, uh, I was in the orchestra playing it, but the Howard Shore soundtrack for right, the score, the right. De Niro. Uh, right. Um, Marlon Brando uh, right. uh, movie. So right. I remember you being yeah. st- talk about nerve wracking. Like yeah. everybody, you're the focus of attention for the entire room. Know, that was... Director, everybody. So right. and, and of course you uh, absolutely killed it. But oh, okay, anyway, man. maybe you get, there's so much to pick from. But if you had some favorite memories that jump out at you in terms of your, sure. your work um, in New York.
1: Well, I, I met Joe Lovano uh, when when I joined Woody Herman's band. I met him and Ralph LaLama, both within the first 30 seconds and was sitting in between them, you know, uh, my seat on the bus and, uh, you know, Joe's, uh, you know, well, what can you say about Joe? He's just incredible. Every, everything that he does is, yeah. is, uh, amazing. And as I mentioned before, he's one of those cats who's always improvising and always stretching and always trying to, you know, to play that, that next melody. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, has so many different projects over the years, uh, has found a way to, to fit his thing into so many different kind of environments, as I call them, you know, different types of rhythm sections and different type of music, and so when I came to New York, he was playing with with uh, the Vanguard band at that time, and uh, we had talked about doing things. I'd seen him over the years in different situations, so... Uh, We started a band that later became known, I guess, as the Universal Language Band with with, uh, Judy Silvano singing his Mm -hmm. wife and Joe and I in the front line. And then uh, John Riley or Jeff Williams on drums, Kenny Werner and Scott Lee. And so we did quite a lot of playing with that. And that was perhaps the first time I was really uh, exposed to like group improvisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, between Judy and Joe and me uh, you know Joe always talked about in a trio there are all these different combinations of duos and the trio and and uh, you know the music can like kind of uh, morph from one duo to another duo back to the trio back to a solo you know uh, so it was a very interesting way to think about think about music you know it exposed me to a lot of new ways of thinking before that I guess I'd played some free music but not really as intense and on this kind of uh, level, as part of a concept of a band sound, you know. And I've worked with Joe a lot over the years with different bands, of the the uh, the Nanette that he has. Right, uh, such a great band. It yeah. Plays all sorts of different music, from from bebop arrangements to. Uh, originals, a lot of Joe's kind of freer originals, you know, I've been lucky to have a couple of my uh, pieces played Mm. as well and recorded with the Non-Ed, and uh, and now there's a new band called the Village Rhythms Band that that we recorded last year at the Blue Note Alive recording that I think is going to come out sometime next year, and we're going to start touring with that again with me, and uh, Judy, Judy and Joe in the front line, you know.
0: Nice, I will look forward to hearing that. Yeah, so it's... uh,
1: the collaboration continues. Excellent, you know.
0: <laughs> and then That's the first the
1: first record I did for Blue Note, no words. He was the producer, and played on uh, on about half of the record. Mm-hmm. You know, played some mm-hmm. great things on on that record. You know? Yeah,
0: no 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 question. Let's you know say this is a sad uh, note. We lost uh, one of the great musicians, Bob Belden, this this year. But and you probably more than anybody else had such a close relationship with Bob. He Worked with you on your CDs. He you played on that um, we were talking before. Maybe ten of his CDs in right, various capacities, right. but always in a kind of a prominent role. Um, maybe you know your memories of Bob and just looking back on that uh, that association.
1: Right. Well, it was quite a shock when he uh, you know he had a heart attack on the, I think May 17th, 18th mm-hmm. this year and. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it, it's one thing when you realize somebody is really, you know, is up there in years that this could maybe happen or, you know, but it's always a shock when, when I mean, he was 58, yeah. you know, and I'd yeah. seen him uh, two months before. He looked great. I wasn't aware of any, like, uh, heart problems or, you know, he'd never talked about that, that kind of health issue. So mm-hmm. I, I really, uh, it was really uh, surprising, you know. Yeah. And I was there for, uh, you know, three days. He was in the hospital. They were trying to get some kind of sign of, you know, life. And I played, uh, played. he was a big fan of, of TV theme songs, you know. <laughs> and he could sing them and play them all. Gilligan's Island, F Troop, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Griffith, I mean, you know, uh, some obscure ones, too, you know. So uh, so, I had my trumpet and a Harmon mute and played his TV songs and songs <laughs> oh, for man. him, you know, um, you know, just in case he was still, you know, hearing and you know That's the vibe. Awful. But but you know uh, you know I first met Bob. I really didn't meet him, but I was subbing. This is probably 1987-88 with the Vanguard band, and uh, and I just came in and went to the trumpet section and <clears throat> was there and. And uh, this guy was subbing for, it turned out to be Bobby, he was subbing for Ralph LaLama, so he was kind of right in front of me. And he played a really long tenor solo, just incredible tenor solo. Mm. And he had this, like, flowing, incredible hair, you know. <laughs> and I thought, uh, who is this guy? You know, and Mel said the names real quick, so I didn't get his name you okay. know, at the end of the set or during the applause after that, that particular uh, that particular composition and, and it's funny, uh, we walked back to the bar and, and uh, John Mosca, the trombone player, standing there and um, he said to this fellow, he said, Bob, it's nice to see you back down here playing with us. We, we haven't seen you in quite a while and this guy just said, there's too many trombone solos, John. <laughs> 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 and walked, walked in. Right you know, yeah, right. Here I am, I'm new, I'm going to be nice to everyone. And, and, and anyway, I don't think there are too many trombone so, <laughs> right. so, you know. Um, so, you know, I just thought, wow, this cat, man, he must have all the gigs in the world. He can say that to a right. trombone player. Right. He's kind of in control of, like, one of the guys in the band that's, like, got some power, you know. So, uh, you know, and then I got a phone call about a year later, and I talked to this guy for two hours. At that point, knowing his name was Bob Belden, but I'd never really heard of him or, you know, and we're talking about all this deep stuff about music, and, and he was aware of my history, and and we're just, I'm thinking, you know, we're talking about my favorite Miles solos, and do I prefer this one on Walking to That One, and how did I feel about the Sam Rivers record, and do I think Wayne is better than, was it, you know, all these kind of like things, and then he finally says, well, I'm putting a band together, we have a rehearsal of Don Sickler's on Sunday, would you like to come, you know, and that was the beginning of, what was called the Bob Belden Ensemble, and also the Treasure Island Band, because the first record we did for uh, Sunnyside was called uh, Treasure Island, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and so that was the beginning in '88, I guess, of uh, 25 years of, uh, of playing together and hanging together on the road, you know, and uh, he was a he was one of those guys. I mean, you say, you know, words like genius and one of a kind, and you know, uh, things. Sometimes they're a little overrated, uh, but, but he definitely was the most interesting cat I've met because mm-hmm. um, his composing, it, it was the conceptualizing first of everything, just the overall picture of how something could sound, how a, a, a CD could sound,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what the vibe was going to be, the vibe of a concert, the vibe, it was the vibe first of what it should emotionally project Mm -hmm. and then you work into the details of who and when and this and that you know Mm -hmm. and so I learned a lot from him the the 15 years I was the artistic director of the Norrbotten big band a great band in Sweden you know Uh, I wrote a lot of music and with a planning group within the band we planned a lot of things and always in the back of my mind was like what would Bob think of this how Mm -hmm. would he like deal with this how would he look at the big picture first and work into you know that kind, of, uh, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing where everything fit. And even I noticed if I would write, and I'm not necessarily saying this came exactly from Bob, but just in this way of thinking, if I was gonna write six or seven arrangements for a certain soloist with the Norbot and Big Band, and it was their music they sent me, I would try to have some motifs, you know, in the first couple of arrangements that appeared in the last couple of arrangements. Mm but were developed and hidden, mm. just so that it wasn't six or seven arrangements of tunes by the soloist, but there was some kind of, to the overall con- concert, there was some kind of thread that made it seem like one, mm. one statement, mm. you know? And I, and I think, uh, as I said, this, this wasn't directly, specifically talked about with, with Bob, but just seeing how he would make things relate different aspects of a recording or a gig you know relate back and forth and develop and um, it was it was quite an experience mm-hmm. and he was an incredible saxophone player right i, I did a, you know I it's mean, forgotten a little yeah, bit you yeah, know? yeah 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 it's yeah. like it's like that in a way you know you forget what a wonderful trumpet player he was um i did a record my second record for blue note was called audible architecture which was kind of uh based on the way i play with intervals and building things, and I'd look at the New York skyline and, and see melodic lines, you know, on the buildings, and not mm-hmm. just the skyscrapers, but just neighborhoods and, you know, the in- intricacies of the, the architecture, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Bob had said to me, uh, you know, uh, sometime earlier, maybe a few months before I was going to go in the studio and do that, and it was a trumpet trio record with Billy Kilson and Larry Grenadier, he said, you know, I'm going to quit playing the tenor saxophone. It's like, I'm just going to play soprano. And uh, I probably asked him why, and he gave me some answer that was the answer of the day for things like that. I mean, you know, he would, you would get, depending on, you know, your question and what day it was, he would give you many different kinds of answers. And all of them were probably true, but it was just, okay, well, I'm going to say this now. Right. I don't know if it was too heavy to carry anymore on the planes or whether he just wanted to concentrate on the soprano or i don't i don't know exactly right why but uh i said man i better get this cat recorded because if he's going to stop playing tenor this is like an incredible voice you know so he played on about half of the record on audible architecture and he just solos on that record are are wonderful and and inspiring for me playing alongside of him and
0: you know. Yeah, the two of you are a great uh, match in every way. You know, certainly as a front line, but also uh, producing and you know interacting off each other compositionally. And it's, it's a great uh, combination that uh, sadly is over in a certain way, but in another way, his music is certainly going to live on and right. uh, and right. influence us all for for decades to come. You know, right. without question.
1: Right. No, it's um you know, it's really uh, it's really hard to believe. And and there are things that where I would think. You know, I got to get a hold of this guy. I know Bob has his number. Or um, what's the, what's that one recording that you know uh, you know Sonny Clark did that has that tune on it? And you know, and I think well, I'll call Bob because he knows all that. And yeah, you know,
0: yeah. Well, that's not going to work. You know, long so, before uh, long before we had the internet, I mean, Bob had an encyclopedic right. knowledge of, right. of of all of that uh, information. Right. is unbelievable. Right. Well, you, you touched on the Norbotten um, Big Band, and I wanted to acknowledge that. And you, you you were there for 15 years as the Artistic Director. Right. And uh, and you also wrote a great deal of music for them. I think we said previously you did six CDs with the band. Right. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and also combine it with your thoughts about the state of the Big Band and where things might be going. I mean, I think for the longest time, it's been much healthier in Europe in terms of Big Bands, but you know now we're seeing... Uh, you know, bands, maybe not in the way that it used to exist with Buddy Rich and Stan Kenton and Woody Herman, but, you know, we're seeing tremendous success for people like Maria Schneider and Bob Mincer and these right. great great writers that are that are forging ahead with the big bands. Right. I was curious as to your <clears throat> perspective on that in terms of your time in Europe and then what you're seeing as uh, the future might be for that.
1: Well, Europe is very special because a lot of the tax, you know, the... Tax money is going to fund artistic adventures and enterprises. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's very unique, and I think I, I always say that you know you can take the most right-wing European politician, and they're, they're not going to touch funding for the arts or education or healthcare. Mm. Now that's, of course, I used to say that a long time ago, and now that's changing a little bit, because man, there's some crazy people over there in office. <laughs> it's just incredible. What, and and I and, and I always warn against that. I say, look, look at this country and the the of the the, the the situation of education and healthcare, and how it's managed, and and who has access to it and who doesn't.
2: Right.
1: And uh, the, the lives of artists and how how. You know the frequency that people are exposed to real art. I'm not talking about going to, um, you know, necessarily movies or. Uh, uh, you know, watching uh, TV, or I'm talking about going to symphony concerts or jazz concerts where people are pushing the envelope on their, on this mm-hmm. this thing. Uh, in America, it's very it's 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 on a much lo- lower level than it is in Europe. And right, uh, you know the the band that I worked with for many years, the Norrbotten Big Band. Norrbotten is the largest county in Sweden. It's also the northernmost county in Sweden. It's the mm. largest land mass county okay. you know it, uh, the ar- arctic circle runs right through it and then there's much more above the arctic circle but sweden has a policy that everybody no matter where they live should be exposed to the art so this is not necessarily a radio band like the, the one i work with in germany the ndr band in, in hamburg although we did record for the radio quite often but it's a touring band so mm. we would have a soloist uh, a Swedish soloist, or uh, people like uh, Dave Liebman and Joe Lovano, Randy Brecker, all came over. Uh, Rufus Reed came over to be soloists with the and Big Band, and I would arrange their music, and always. And, and then, uh, sorry, I'm messing with the equipment here. Then I no would, worries. <laughs> I would write, uh, you know, one or two original compositions to challenge the soloist, and also, you know, present something new. To the audience, uh, like world premieres, and we uh, were highly successful. Even though there aren't necessarily large cities there, but we always had a, a great audience, and we we talked about it as being the hippest place to be right now. In mm-hmm. this town, is in this concert hall, listening to this music mm-hmm. in advance, talking about it. This is going to be something special, a world premiere of a composition featuring Dave mm-hmm. Liebman. Mm-hmm. You know. And, uh, and people are receptive to that. And this is great. We've got Dave Liebman, we've got the Norbotten Big Band in our town of 30,000 tonight. Mm-hmm. And so the place is packed, you know. And, uh, and, and it's re- and, but it's all being funded by the tax money. And these organizations have a demand or a requirement that they earn back through ticket sales and through other income sources coming back in, maybe 15 or 20% of their yearly budget. So that means that they, they get this great budget from the government to do these things, and there's not this incredible uh, stress to recoup everything. Mm-hmm. You know, now in mm-hmm. this country, everything is based on, on that concept. Sure. And so it severely limits what's available to people because of the, the, the you know um, what am I trying to say? The, uh, not the lack so much, but a smaller amount of those kinds of budgets sure and uh and so you know the big orchestras uh, opera companies uh uh dance theaters, perhaps although the dance world really uh has has a lot of problem, getting the funding of the symphony orchestras and the uh the the operas do. I'm talking about the performing arts, of course, the big museums are funded, but to fund the smaller arts groups you know um, is it's really uh it's really impossible and so you know you mentioned people like maria schneider and and Bob Minzer. you know, I watch what they do and see how they put a band together in those Vigioni's days with Maria Schneider, Uh, you know, putting together a band every Monday that could play her music on that level and the stress and the work and then I get on a plane and I just go over to Norrbotten and I walk into a concert hall and a a Mm -hmm. rehearsal hall, staff musicians, and uh, everything is taken care of by a big organization and it sounds great. I did feel a slight bit guilty of over <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> thankful for the opportunity. But I look at, at what you have to do here. And I think and, you know, now that I'm, I'm uh, uh, in New York full time and I'm still traveling to Europe quite a bit, but not at all with the frequency that I used to, I'm contemplating starting my own big band because I have so much material. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little different and it's coming from my melodic voice and the, the way I write and think about the big band. And I'm thinking, OK, how do I start this mm. thing? Because mm-hmm. uh, it's just with the telephone and getting people interested who will do things for free or not a lot of money just because they love the music. And so I'm I'm gearing up for that <laughs> for that process. You know.
0: Well, that's always a challenge. But somebody at your level of artistry is everybody. I like, can speak for the entire New York scene <laughs> would love to be involved with that. I'm sure. But uh, you know, it's it's such a great point. You're, you you. Uh, spent so much time in Europe and have that interesting vantage point, but it is amazing how much funding right. you know, having that funding in place takes the edge off the whole thing. And and, right, and right. The, but it is it's a great point you brought up that the the people in these towns feel supportive about the that right. music and right. how you've been able to create that. That's a very cool right. thing, obviously. Right. You know?
1: right. And I think that's a little bit lacking in this country is is talking about You know, and and I'm talking about politicians, they don't, you know, they talk about many things, they talk about many things that need to be talked about, but uh, they're not talking about the arts, and the arts makes people smarter, Mm -hmm. you know? If if you take somebody who really doesn't know that much about music, has never played a musical instrument, and you sit them down, and they listen either live or on a recording to Beethoven's Fifth, or uh, a Mozart uh, symphony, or Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, or a, or Brahms, or something that is, uh, you know, not totally whacked out, mm-hmm. melodic, functional harmony, tonal, and you can get them to have an emotional response to that. Then, of course, that will lead. It's like a, a gateway music drug. That will lead, of course, to listening to, you know, mm-hmm. more advanced things. But but you get them to identify emotionally with the abstract. That's mm-hmm. what art does, you know? and, and, and if, if you can have people do that, then when they're facing a, 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 an issue about healthcare or about the GMOs or about uh, the education for their kids or just family decisions, then it's not gonna be based on the five or 10 second sound bites that they mm-hmm. get from radio or television or somebody who supposedly is an authority figure and authority on the subject telling them how they have to feel, mm-hmm. but they're gonna use their own mind and say, well, I could identify with that work of art. And so let me use that same intuition and my analytical powers to like, you know, that's the importance of art. Art makes people smarter, it makes them more in touch with the abstract and we're as white and black as everybody wants to think this world is, it's just abstract, you know. Mm-hmm issues we have to deal with but i also think that that the really you know and i write about this on my website any successful dictator knows that that because art makes people smart those are the, that's the first group you have to squelch
0: you know <laughs> right, right
1: because if you're going to succeed in repression you have to take away the people that inspire free thought and of course in this country it's not done m- with the military it's not done but it's done subversively so that we don't even know that it's happening because uh, funding was taken away from the NEA years ago for individual artists um, and uh, uh, politicians aren't talking about it. It's like mm-hmm. the arts don't even exist. Mm-hmm. And if they don't exist, then then uh, the powers that be that are afraid of the arts don't have anything to worry about because it's not even a, an entity. It's not mm-hmm. even a player in the game. You know? mm-hmm. So I feel like uh, my personal thing is to always talk about in clinics when I'm doing university visits or on the bandstand talk about how important music is. You know, and uh, it is perhaps the most abstract art form because basically what we're doing is looking at people manipulating mm-hmm. tools. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the art is what, you know, what we hear. So, uh, so I think it's, it's important to, uh, to emphasize that, Why? especially in this country. And I warn against that when I'm in Europe. Uh-huh. When I speak with politicians and policymakers, people that are in charge of things, that you know.
0: Wow, that's so we, so well said. What, no, what, what mean, question did, did that? What it question did that answer? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter if it answered a question. That was a great thought and, a, and a, an important point to be made. And uh, what's that famous Winston Churchill quote when he said that? Uh, when they said we need to cut the arts because of the war effort, and he said, "Well, then, what are we fighting for?" Right, Some, right, something to that right. effect. But. Uh, Right. But basically, he saw the value of the arts right. and your, your right. words are uh, couldn't be more uh, in line with that. Um, just as a side note, there's not that many people I know who have an honorary doctorate, but you have an honorary doctorate <laughs> from the Sibelius Academy in, uh, in Helsinki, Finland, which is an right. incredible music school. Right, and, uh, right. What, how did that come about, just out of curiosity?
1: Well, um, a good friend of mine, I met him in New York in 1987, and then we started playing together in uh, in Europe in 1989 as a drummer, Yukis Utala. Oh, I know. Yukis. Yes, no. yes. Tremendous. Um,
0: Not only drums, right? He plays uh, a incredible piano player. an incredible
1: piano player, incredible pianist, musician. and, and uh, uh, recently put out a big band record with the Stockholm Jazz Orchestra, all his compositions, where he played drums and then... Uh, uh, you know, over, overdubbed a pian- lot of the piano oh, wow. part. Incredible, so incredible so great, record. Yeah. And so and even in the liner notes, he says, this is the one record where I can't complain about the piano player. <laughs> 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 but uh, anyway, we've played together since 1989, regularly. He's on my, uh, a lot of my records, and uh, uh, he's in New York frequently. We do a lot of gigs together. In fact, I was just with the NDR band at Hamburg um, for two weeks. Uh, and he was there because I always request him as the, mm. the drummer and they'll bring him from Finland and he's just an incredible interpreter of, uh, of of big band and then when it's time for the solos, it's about as stanky and swanky <laughs> as, as you can get. So he's like the, the consummate big band drummer, you know, um, and so because I'm, he's affiliated with the, uh, the jazz department, jazz studies department at the Sibelius Academy, um, you know, he's brought me over several times and other people in the department. And uh, during my Norbotten years, I could always kind of stop off in Helsinki for a few days uh, and do some teaching. They yep. have a lot of trumpet students, great trumpet students, uh, many that I had as students in the in the mid to late 90s, uh, early 2000s that are now like the top players in, uh, in Finland, uh, oh, cool. not necessarily because of my, uh, meetings with them, but it was a—it was a—it's a great trumpet group that they have in that city, and uh, the, a lot of the guys play in the Umo Big Band, and so uh, so I've been there quite a lot, and it's been fun to watch the the, the students grow into professional musicians. And uh, nice, yeah. So um, they—it was a surprise to me, but Ucas called me, sat on a committee, and and uh, they they thought my uh, association with the school all these years they would. Every seven years, I think they have a graduation and, and uh, you know give some honorary doctorates. Well, so very very well deserved <laughs> for yeah, sure. That's a, very cool. It was a great three-day event. You know, I, the first time I'd had a tux on with tails.
0: Ah, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and then in part of that,
1: we also did a concert of uh, music that I've written for uh, for big band with the Alumni big band and oh that alumni. must have been great yeah Yuccas and I played a little some gigs together so it was great I love Helsinki it's a great yeah. it's a beautiful city and the people are so uh, so open and uh, it's an incredible culture as well and and, and they they are really friendly and mm-hmm. you know I'd love to learn Finnish I speak Swedish but Finnish is a very uh, specific language to, mm-hmm. you know there's no other language really like it and. Uh, uh, so they're more than happy to speak English. And, yeah. You
0: know. That's great Great people. No, yeah. no question about it. Right. Well, as we wind down a little bit here, I wanted to to focus a little bit on your work with uh, with Michelle, okay. uh, who is sure. your better half, but right. also the... Uh, I want to make sure you pronounce her name properly because I, right. I know I'm going to uh, mangle <laughs> it in some way.
1: Uh, Michelle Brangwen.
0: Brangwen. Right. And her dance ensemble. And you've right. done... Uh, Written music, performed music with the dance ensemble and her. And just tell us about that work that you're doing uh, with the dance ensemble.
1: Um, Yeah, I'd be happy to. Michelle is, uh, uh, she's from New York originally, spent many years in Houston, and has uh, had uh, a dance company, it's a nonprofit, the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensemble, for, uh, you know, almost 20 years. And uh, she has a very interesting concept. It's, uh, modern dance uh, there's always a story to tell but the she only uses live music Mm. and the music is commissioned by her it's new compositions live musicians playing it and the musicians are on stage with the dancers in the choreography not just in the pit or standing on the side of the stage um, and there are many videos on YouTube. Her YouTube channel, Brangwen Dance, at YouTube, and she has a website, brangwindance.org. Uh, has a lot of examples of this where, uh, where, you know, I've written the music for a lot of times as a tenor player that works with her, Seth Painter from Houston, and uh, the bassist Thomas Helton. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes there's other musicians as well. And uh, all of us have, uh, of course, we're not dancers and we're not doing. You know ballet moves, Mm -hmm. but we have uh, we're interacting with the dancers, uh, and movements that are choreographed where we move to certain places and bend certain ways or interact in certain choreographed ways. And then there's also some improvisation where the dancer and musician interact with each other. And uh, you know I've I've known Michelle now for nine years. We've been to a lot of dance concerts together from like the well-known, incredibly famous. Companies to uh, to smaller companies all over the country, and I've never seen a company that incorporates musicians into the choreography mm-hmm. as, as as she does.
0: Yeah, I've never heard even you know, heard yeah, it, that approach. That's it, so cool. Well, know. I
1: think a lot of choreographers are afraid of first of all of live music. Uh, I'm I'm always amazed at how many dance productions are using taped music, canned mm-hmm. music, you know, mm-hmm. and of course it's. It's an economic thing, but it's also uh, you can rehearse to a, a version of a, a classical piece, and it's the same. You just hit the play button; it's right. the same every time. You don't have to deal with humans playing the music. You know where there can be that that flow. You know, um, and and that's what's missing is mm-hmm. that flow. You know that human of humans physically moving to humans playing musical instruments, and that that thing is incredibly powerful. Mm. You know. Appalachian Spring, when it premiered, was for a small orchestra. Aaron Copeland played piano in that, you know, and uh, you know Martha Graham used, uh, you know, live musicians, of course. But uh, it's really uh, an interesting concept and very innovative.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and we did a project with the Norbertin Big Band. Uh, I wrote a, and, and the the one interesting thing about this concept is the music has to be memorized, because uh, the musicians were moving. You right, know, and you right. don't want music stands with lights in the middle of the choreography. <laughs> so I wrote a piece, an hour-long piece for the the Norbot and Big Band uh, that they memorized, and they wow. all had, uh, uh, you know, places to move, and and uh, they were involved with the dancers. You know, some more than others. I asked for volunteers with the band. I said, <laughs> okay, you know, some of you can be soloists with a with a dancer, and you know, so. Wow, how brave cool. ones! Yeah,
0: it. and do like a, the trombone step up or um, they? <laughs> not really. No, it's like a, <laughs> dancing and trombone not a good uh, combination. Um,
1: but uh, yeah, as I said on her website and YouTube channel, there are examples of even the big band because it was filmed. She does a lot of dance on film too. It's you know you choreograph for the camera, which is not necessarily for live performance, but to make a dance film mm-hmm. with camera angles in mind and, and how it will be filmed, and then, of course, there are films of the performances as well.
0: Wow, you know, I'm so. looking forward to checking that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, so her YouTube channel. Right, right. Great. Yeah. Very cool stuff. I will look forward to that. Tim, I always kind of wrap up our interviews with the great artists like yourself, and you, you have so much, uh, this has been an amazing uh, opportunity to hear your vision and in your thoughts on things. I feel like I've learned so much just in the last hour or so if you could kind of capitalize it down and, and, there's young folks out there that are looking up to you and there's old folks like me that look up to you as well. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll heed these words as well. But, um, if you were to give some advice to young people or young artists that, that, that mm-hmm. want to take an artistic route like you have, which is a very brave, bold move these mm-hmm. days, uh, to take that route. But, uh, um, what advice would you would you give them in terms of uh, trying to have success on that road? <laughs> well, okay
1: <laughs> I think um, the most important uh, well I, I don't want this to sound the wrong way. I, I have a lot of things to say as usual about the subject, <laughs> but um, I think uh, you have to think about what you do. And and of course, this is gonna sound weird as soon as I say it, but I'll explain it. You have to think about what you do as a product. Um, And by that, I mean, you have to have something, and this cannot be contrived, something that no one else has. And I think it's, uh, and and we'll perhaps talk about this at another point, but I think everybody has their own artistic uh, kind of flow out You know, Mm -hmm. mine was in music Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm a melodist. I can only play one note at a time on the trumpet. So my whole emphasis is on playing melodies that are honest to me, the way I hear melodies. So that's my product. That's what I have to offer and really Um, No one plays melodies like I do, for better or for worse. You know, you can, in my history, there are a lot of people that that think it's too strange, they think it's weird. They think, Woody (laughs) Herman, for example, thought, what "What is this? Um, And then there are people that embrace it, that think, wow, there's nobody else sounds like this. So, you know, so I think that's the important thing. And and again, I want to emphasize it can't be contrived. There are a lot of people I hear that are out there thinking, I have to do something different. And so I'm going to do this. And it's not honest. It's not from the heart. It's just for doing something different. And and I can tell. I'm not moved by it emotionally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When somebody is really playing with emotion, this natural way of, of whatever you do, whether you're painting or writing or, or playing music or dancing, if you're really honest with yourself and let it just kind of naturally with all the inspiration and influences you have... Uh, take form, then I think that is something that is highly marketable, because we, we, it all goes back to we have to pay our bills,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know? We wanna do this, we don't wanna do something else, work another job to pay the bills so we can get around to the art. We want the art to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it has to be a very strong, uh, highly kind of refined thought through, but in the moment kind of way of playing. And I'm talking specifically about improvising jazz musicians here, just to, to confine it. Mm-hmm. And I think if you have something that is very individual and honest, it will move people and it will move the audiences, but it will also move the people that, that, that fortunately, unfortunately are there to put you in front of the audience, the club owners, the record people, the uh, the festivals, the bookers, you know, you have to convince those people that they can make money off of your, your thing, mm-hmm. you know? But I don't think, that's kind of the overview. I think the main thing is to just develop a very honest, artistic voice, and all of that other stuff will take care of itself, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and also, I see the times change. When I, when I first came to New York in the, in the late 80s, the Blue Note Records had just uh, been revitalized. Bruce Lundvall, who also coincidentally passed the day before Bob Belden, which was strange because I was in a room many times with just those two guys, you know, talking about different projects for Blue Note, but uh, he had just, he and Michael Cuscuna had just uh, revitalized Blue Note, and so, and and all the record companies were still around, Columbia, Warner Brothers, I mean, uh, Verve, they were all there, and and like I said earlier with the with the the job seemingly available with big bands there were record companies that were looking for musicians and so that was the system i used and i was successful uh, bruce heard me play many times with belden with with levano um, i had conversations with him he decided to give me a record deal and so i made a lot of records for blue note as mm-hmm. a leader as well as for sidemen over a course of about 15 years it was a a great experience and i you know bruce is you know one of my heroes for, for taking a chance on a, <laughs> somebody like me playing the way I do, you know? But now it's changed with, uh, with the digital music and MP3s and file sharing and everything that went down Napster on. It's all about self-promotion mm-hmm. and social media. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think the younger students and musicians, they're growing up with this as the norm. I'm, I have to learn it, mm-hmm. you know? I do gigs, I, I post them on my website, on Facebook, on Twitter, I'm learning how to do this and the importance of it, you know, but for the younger musicians, they're growing up in this world, you yeah, know, with really. devices and, and this kind of uh, contact, and also uh, producing their own recordings and promoting their own recordings, and so I, I think that's what, you know, that's what we have to do now, all of us, and I mm-hmm. think the young musicians are... Probably more adept at at doing it because they grew up with this being the norm, mm-hmm. you know I'm still looking in the audience for like a and r guys from record companies
0: <laughs> <laughs> Where are you guys <laughs>
1: you <know? laughs>
0: well that's i that's incredibly well said, in and i think I think you're right I think I, we're we're kind of learning to adapt to that world that they're coming up with so right. so that's a good right. thing for young players but right. uh, but and, also I think yeah. you know finding your individual voice, which is easier said than done, like you right, pointed right. out, but that's well, yeah, it's a, it's at the end lifetime. of the day, that's I, the important thing. Right. I mean. I'm
1: still developing. I mean, I've been playing the trumpet for over 50 years and improvising for a good part of those 50 years. And I'm still finding new ways to use those 12 notes and, and uh, become, trying to become a better trumpet player. Uh, I always hear things and the, the verb hear is very loose because I don't actually maybe hear things. I feel things, I see things. And mm-hmm. Every note to me has a color every combination of two notes, the color change. I see things in color. I mean, what makes me play the next note is very abstract and comes from many different sources. But I'm always hearing things I can't play physically on the Mm -hmm. trumpet. It's Mm -hmm. expanding beyond my technical reach. So I'm trying to expand my ability on the trumpet as well to be able to play those things. And I think that's important. It's always development. And the, the final thing, if I can say one more thing is that there's a lot of people that are discouragents, as I mm-hmm. call them, and they, <laughs> you know, and they want to tell young people, and, and you find educators like this, but you find them all over, there's no work out there. Mm-hmm. You'll never work or you'll, you know, now there's some teachers that say in order to work you're going to have to improve on this because they know and they've had experience, mm-hmm. you know, woodwind players, you got to get your doubles together, things like that but there are a lot of people out there that are very discouraging because perhaps they're disgruntled with their own career. Mm -hmm. But there is work out there. There will always be work out there. And it may be in in strange places that you never thought you would work. I've had many experiences like that. Mm -hmm. It may come from sources that you never think will will offer you work. Uh, uh, When I first came to New York, I did like three or four wedding receptions Mm -hmm. a weekend and it was just playing Motown top 40 hits and, you know, the Tarantella and Joe Beam tunes, Mm -hmm. you know, all great music, but it wasn't really all that creative. But when I went in on Monday night and played with Mel's band or Maria's band or subbing in the Gil Evans band, my chops were in great shape. Mm -hmm. And that's what helped me get the blue note deal with Bruce, Mm -hmm. him hearing me on a Monday night with with Mel's band, Mm -hmm. you know. So some things lead to other things that seem uh not related at all yeah but there you know you just have to have hope and you have to believe in yourself and believe in that thing that you have that nobody else has you know
0: awesome it's so great (laughs) and uh i know i know i speak for all of our viewers uh we look forward to following you everybody check out tim's website timhagans.com uh follow him wherever he goes he's going to be in europe and in the states and doing all kinds of stuff and uh um, your work with Michelle. I can't wait to check that out myself and uh, do a little more, do a little more uh, <laughs> investigating on, on her uh, uh, YouTube channel. So, Tim, thank you. Thanks for coming today. I should You're also welcome. mention that Tim is going to do uh, a Hip Bone U lesson and talk about chromatic improvising, which I can't wait to hear. So um, make sure to check that out. And uh, we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick. <laughs>